Welcome to episode three of The Grey NATO, a loose discussion of travel, adventure, diving, gear, and most certainly watches. I'm Jason Heaton, a Minneapolis-based freelance writer for a number of gear, travel, and timepiece publications, including Gear Patrol, Hodinkee, Revolution, and Men's Journal. And I'm James Stacy, Based in Vancouver, I call myself a professional enthusiast, and I write about watches, cars, and almost anything else that catches my eye for a blogtowatch.com, Nouveau Magazine, and more. Right off the top, we want to thank everyone who is listening, commenting, and sending us questions. We really appreciate all the love, and we'll actually be answering some of your questions later in the show. If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to leave us a review in your podcast app of choice, as this will help us get the word out and grow our audience. Uh, speaking of growth, Jason and I would like to extend a huge thank you to Hodenki for the early and all-too-kind coverage. Huge respect for what you guys are doing, and we really appreciate the love and all the new listeners you brought to the show. Finally, for all of those who asked, we now have proper show notes. Uh, starting with episode two, there's no need to carry a pen and paper while listening. Just swing by soundcloud.com slash thegraynado and expand the show description for the episode to view the complete notes and links for everything we spoke about. With that covered, on to our main topic dive watches. All right. Well, today's main topic is one that is near and dear to both of our hearts, both of us being divers. Um, our favorite dive watches, we'll talk a little bit about our criteria for what is a good dive watch, maybe a few pet peeves and some memorable experiences that we've had diving with watches. Uh, James, you know, we, we both know, as probably a lot of the listeners do, that the dive watches probably aren't used, well, we, we know they're not used as, as serious instruments anymore by the great majority of, of people that wear them. Uh, but it certainly hasn't diminished their popularity. And so it kind of seems like a good jumping off point to ask why dive watches still attract people. Why, why, why do you think, James, or what attracted you about dive watches? For me, I mean, the, the dive watch functionality was kind of specifically tuned. They took a watch and they tuned it for diving. And that's like a 50 or 60 year old idea that's kind of more or less been locked in place from the basics. And as it turns out, I think the longevity of the dive watch doesn't have that much necessarily to do with diving. Certainly, um, the creation and, and popularity of dive computers should have kind of killed the dive watch if that's all it was. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the, the concept of a dive watch simply makes for a better overall sport watch. So it's very tough, legible, you get a screw down crown, water resistance, the elapsed time bezel is just as capable of timing a pizza as it is, say, a dive. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think to me, the word that kind of jumps out when I think about a dive watch is is honest. Um, I just feel like nowadays and, and even going back in history, so many watches uh, have been created to sort of either make a statement or to impress you with a complication or a series of complications. But uh, a dive watch is, is just such a brutally simple creature and it has such a, a simple job to do. And I think the fact that they were designed with this singular purpose has kind of led to this popularity of the entire genre of watch that we now know as the tool watch, which kind of followed from there. You know, you get watches that were designed for, you know, caving. Um, you get watches that are designed for, um, you know, sailing and, and other very specific purpose-built watches. And I think, you know, when the dive watch came on the scene back in the 1950s, it was kind of the dawn of that era. And, and Rolex, of course, was a big part in that development. But I think... Uh, the other brands sort of caught on, and, and I think that that popularity um, just sort of continued to grow. And, and even today, when when a watch is arguably more of a, a fashion accessory, uh, you know, people still seek out that sort of purpose-built aspect of a watch. What what, do you, what have you dived with? What do you enjoy diving with? What what would you like to dive with? What what are kind of your favorite watches that are out there these days? 
Yeah, I, I've got kind of a stack of dive watches that I like. Some I've actually not dove with, some that I have. Um, as far as ones that I have dove with, the uh, you know what stands out is the the Tudor Pelagos I took out uh, recently. I think that's about as pure an expression of like a, as modern a sport watch as anyone could need. Mm-hmm. Hugely capable. Um, obviously, the titanium is going to get beat up if you actually use it for frequent diving, but I don't think that's going to slow the watch or its functionality down, and you're not going to scratch that bezel. Huge respect for the Sea Dweller. Uh, I, I love the Submariner. It's never been something that really spoke directly to me. But the Sea Dweller, on the other hand, because of its history, I, I really like. And I like that they still basically make the same watch today. And, and there's no shortage of the last two generations in the pre-owned market. And they're a great value. Mm-hmm. I have a long and you know on-record love for my Omega 2254, which, to be honest, isn't a great dive watch. I mean, it's a great watch to wear and to use, but the bezel's scalloped as opposed to having like a proper jimp or a coin finish. Yeah. So it's very difficult to grip. It's not very usable when your hands are wet or the bezel's wet. Despite that, you know, great legibility. It's very thin. It's kind of a great everyday watch and maybe a little bit of a flawed watch from the dive standpoint. It's something that they addressed with the uh, Planet Ocean, I think, beautifully which has a great bezel that stands up off the case and gives you a lot of room to grab it. And it turns really nicely. It's just, uh, you know, one of the better bezels out there on the dive watches. And certainly the the Planet Oceans are serious dive watches from uh, really any measure. Yeah, I, I would agree with you on the Pelagos. Um, I, I think it's a really superior uh, modern dive watch. I, I know you're also a big fan of uh, a couple of the smaller brands. You've, you've uh, one of your, your Vancouver mates up there uh, runs Helios, and I think you've got one of his watches. Yeah, I've dove uh, Halios a couple of times, and uh, I, I have a Tropic that I've, I've had a couple times in the cold water around here, and that's a great watch for a dive. It works really well in a rubber strap. The bezel offers enough grip to be used with a glove or, or uh, you know, bare hands. The other one that I would suggest if, if somebody wants, like, an actual watch to wear every day and dive with and spend under $1,000, obviously look at the Halios, but also consider Squala, their 50 Atmos case you know, it's a legacy design by any other brand. This would be a watch that would cost way more money. But Squala has a history as rich as any dive watch company, any Swiss dive watch company. And the uh, the 50 Atmos is such a fantastic case design. You know, it's profiled so that the widest point of the case is the bezel. And beautiful legibility, uh, you know, great luminosity and a fantastic bezel. And I dove a couple times with uh, the 50 Atmos. And it's a great dive watch by any measure, let alone, you know, if you want to start throwing in price points where I think it's about $800. Yeah, I've got I've got a Squalo as, as well. I've got the uh, the 101 Atmos uh, watch, which is that much more sort of 70s lugless design. And uh, I agree. I mean, it, I, I would say it's probably not my favorite in terms of usability, but it's it. It, the the fit and finish for the price of it is 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 pretty outstanding and and Squala does have a great history I I profiled them for a piece on on Hodinkee a, a year or two ago and it kind of really allowed me to dig into to what the company was all about and they they've kind of stayed pure to their roots and and yeah it's a really cool company and and beyond that you know Squale Halios obviously my big love for the Pelagos what's on your list what have you really liked diving with well um. Yeah, I, I've actually, uh, I, I've dived with quite a few. I've probably taken over a couple of dozen different watches diving. And I, I've sort of come to the conclusion that there are sort of two schools of, of dive watches. And I used to be a bit more of a sort of a purist or a snob about dive watches and think, oh, if you can't take it underwater, it's not perfect for diving. Um, it's not worthy. But as you mentioned with your 2254 Seamaster, um, there can be a certain appeal or allure to dive watches that maybe maybe work a little bit better topside than they do underwater. And yeah, no so doubt. I've sort of softened my, uh, 
my stance on that. And so I've, I've sort of got two schools of thought or I've got two sort of families of watches that I like. And, and on the one side, I have the real tool watches. And in that realm is where I put, um, you know, my obvious love for, for Seiko, which uh, if anyone checks out my Instagram feed, you'll, you'll definitely see that come through. Um, and I've, I've dived with, with several Seikos from the big Emperor Tuna, Tuna Can um, piece, which I think is just probably the most uncompromising tool watch ever built. I mean, it's, it's, you know, sits tall on the wrist. It, it wears like, like a dive compass or a depth gauge, you know, just strapped on your wrist with the ceramic shroud and the one piece titanium case, super long strap. Um, so, you know, Seikos are great. Um, I, I think Rolexes still are great, uh, tool diving watches. They just have sort of a, they have so much baggage attached to them now that that I always think twice about wearing them on a trip. Um, but in terms of just fit and finish and and pure quality and just knowing that something's going to work when you put it on, um, you know, I, I still reach for a Rolex occasionally. Oh yeah, you don't get that uh, reputation that Rolex has, especially with things like the Submariner and the Sea Dweller. You don't get that from nothing. That you can't just create that with marketing. Otherwise, every brand would you know would be going for that. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Um, you know, Omega. You mentioned your your Seamaster and the Planet Ocean. I my my first sort of high end dive watch and the one that I actually wore when I got certified diving and I happened to scratch it up on the side of the pool doing my my pool sessions um, was the was the Planet Ocean and I, I still have a love for that watch. I sold it years ago, um, but I still point people in that direction. Uh, but in terms of other Omegas, that a couple summers ago I took the uh, the new Seamaster three hundred Master Coaxial diving um around the the wrecks around isle royal up in lake superior and it's it's just a fantastic watch it, it has that mix of vintage allure with with the modern capabilities it's really legible it's got a great bezel uh nice bracelet and um i don't know just it, it was it was a fun watch to dive with and and then last summer i had the new the new sea dweller up uh, up in lake michigan doing some diving and and uh, again you know the sea dweller it's I would tend to, if I were spending my own money, reach for a Submariner just because I don't need that extra thickness and I certainly don't need a helium release valve. But there's just something that when you put on a Sea Dweller, you're sort of, I feel like you're putting on all this this great, cool history that, that comes with it, you know. Yeah, it's kind of the Speedmaster of dive watches in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Built for a really specific purpose and just really does its job well. Um, on that other side of the fence I was talking about, um, in terms of, sorry, I guess people call them dress divers. Uh, I would really put uh, kind of my, my top choice is something like the Bremont Supermarine. And I've got the Supermarine 2000, but I also think the, the Supermarine 500 is an excellent watch. A great watch. It's, it's just, it's beautifully made. It's a watch that you, you want to spend time sort of looking at the, the casework and, and the, the applied markers on the dial and the bezel's beautiful and it's got a great integrated strap and it's, it's just a, a really pretty watch. But on the other hand, it's also, Anti-magnetic. They've got a great shock absorbing system inside. Um, of course, the one I have is water resistant to 2,000 meters, so it's perfectly capable for diving. But um, I tend not to use it as much for that. So, um, but that one, and then and then years ago, I also had uh, I had taken the the Blanc Pond uh, 50 Fathoms, the the tribute to Aqualung. Um, I took that on a trip to the Florida Keys and did some diving with that one, and it kind of falls in that same category. It's just a, a big, beautiful. Um, you know, watch that sort of harkens back to to the old days of, of cool looking retro style dive watches, but in a very um, sort of almost luxurious sense. And uh, so I really enjoyed that one as well. 
I, one that I neglected to mention that I think really belongs in the tool watch category uh, is Doxa. And I think Doxa is kind of up there with the, the Seiko Tunican dive watches in that it, it, when it was developed in the late 60s, it had such a purpose-built, uncompromising uh, design brief. I mean, it's it's the, the bezel is probably the best dive bezel I've ever I've ever used. It just sits really tall from the case. It has that sort of um, buzz saw uh, grip on the on the bezel. Um, and then you know, even in the old days when they developed it, it had the, the beads of rice bracelet with the expanding spring loaded clasp. The minute hand is much bigger than the hour hand because that's really all you need when you're diving. You know, it's just it was one of these these watches that if you kind of take it as just as a watch, it's it's kind of ugly. Yeah, the docks is very much shaped by diving. Yeah. And oddly, to the to the same extent, just, you know, maybe pushed 30, 40 years newer, uh, I know that you have a love for the Citizen Aqualand, and that's arguably another watch, almost purpose-shaped for diving. Strange-looking piece, topside. Uh, you know, what, what, what was your experience diving with the Aqualand? Well, I, I feel like the Aqualand, it's sort of the, I don't want to say the ugly duckling, it's sort of the sleeper, I guess, in my list of favorites, but it, it actually, I would put it in, in sort of my top five uh, dive watches uh, historically, because I think by the time that first generation Aqualand came out in the 80s, it was kind of the, the logical final step in the entire evolution of true diving watches. Um, you know, quartz had been around for 15 years by that time and had taken hold but it still had classic dive watch looks. It has the rotating bezel, um, the you know the big luminescent hands, super long, great rubber strap that had no deco limit markings on, you know, printed right on the strap, which I loved. Um, but then, of course, they integrated a, a, a an electric or electronic uh, depth gauge, and and they incorporated all these features in a small digital display. They had you know a stopwatch. They had um, an ascent alarm. So if you if you're ascending too fast from a dive, it'll beep at you. It'll track your maximum depth for the past five dives, so you can log them later. Um, it was just a, it was just a, a really cool watch, and I, um, you know, they made kind of the version from the mid '80s, and but nowadays you can still get one that goes by the reference JP2000, and you see them on eBay and some other places. But um, you can get them for a couple hundred bucks, and they still just look, I don't know, to me they just have a, a real tool watch look to them, and especially with that that sort of, uh, bulbous depth gauge sticking off the left side of the case. Yeah, very much a, a kind of purpose-driven design. I, I had a, um, I had the Loomdial Aqualand. I want to say it was probably from the mid-2000s, but it might even have been like a, a line that ran longer than that. It was kind of a thin chronograph, no digital display, but had the depth gauge. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a really cool watch. One of the first watches, or definitely the first watch I ever swam in the ocean with. I took it snorkeling, and uh, I loved it. I mean, I was too excited snorkeling to remember to use the depth gauge. <laughs> but the uh, the watch itself was awesome. It had that same strap you mentioned with the ND scale on it, which just felt super legit, despite my complete lack of legitimacy wearing that watch. <laughs> really cool piece, and definitely one that I think people overlook in the history of dive watches. But like you said, it represents the kind of the final phase before computers took over as the primary dive watch. Yeah, you know, even though it was sort of the the endpoint of the classic dive watch, uh, I think it's still important to to mention that. Dive watches still have a place in, um, you know, in diving. I mean, I, I wear mine, you my, you wear yours, and and I wear mine on the opposite wrist of my dive computer. And I don't just do it for, for fun or to kind of look cool. Um, I've used it for a number of things, and it's actually quite handy underwater if you're timing uh, swim distances for navigation. 
Uh, you can time safety stops um, when you're kind of hanging at about uh, you know five meters uh, after a dive. Uh, surface intervals back on the boat. Um, you know, so it's it's a really handy thing, and that that analog rotating bezel uh, is just so much more accessible and easy to use and, and quick and intuitive than fiddling around with a digital dive computer and trying to find a stopwatch function. Oh yeah, like if if you had at least with mine, I use a computer that I love, the Sunto Zoop. It has a nice big screen for the kind of dark waters around Vancouver. But with the Sunto, like if you had to press any of those buttons underwater, you're out of luck. Yeah. So let's say for whatever reason, barring something really obvious like a battery failure, let's say for whatever reason, you're looking at your computer and you don't know what it's trying to tell you. Mm-hmm. It's failed. Yeah. There's no resetting it underwater that you, I doubt. And I don't even know what the, if the buttons are even designed to be used underwater necessarily. Mine doesn't have a light, like a backup. Right. Or a backlight. You have to use your your, your torch. And uh, and in that case, it's almost crucial to have some sort of a backup. And because I have a, you know, a depth gauge on my instrument cluster that, to, you know, where my, where my pressure gauge is, between that and a dive watch, I have a full fail safe that would tell me not only you know, give you a rough estimation of how long you've been down and your maximum depth, but also be able to run a safety stop. Like safety stops are run by computers all the time now. I've never seen anyone do one without. Yeah, right. Um, you know, they sit there and you, you hold the computer up to your ear and, you know, to try and be able to yeah. hear it through your hood. <laughs> and then it beeps right. when you're clear and then you go up the last the last little bit. But uh, I've, I've experienced a couple people have failures of their computers and luckily their buddies had computers. But without, I mean, nobody, I don't dive with anyone really that carries a dive watch and uses it as a dive watch. I've watched people take dive watches off and put them, you know, in their car when they're getting, yeah. when they're getting suited up. <laughs> I've seen that too. There's a certain camaraderie too, though, if you're on a dive boat. And because nowadays there are so few divers that wear dive watches that if I'm on a dive boat or with a group of divers somewhere and, and someone actually goes diving with their watch, it's, it, there's like this mutual excitement that happens. It's like recognizing one of your own tribe somewhere. I remember I was in... I don't know, Mexico somewhere one time. And, and this guy on the boat had, he had like one of those reference 3536 uh, Aquatimer IWCs from, I don't know what, the 80s or whatever. And it was yeah, like- those are killer. Yeah, I mean, you know, okay, you see a lot of Seikos and things on dive boats if you see any dive watches. But but to see that one, I was just, I was just gushing over it. I think we, you know, held up the rest of the dive just so we could sit and chat about the watches on the boat. Yeah, and the other thing to consider is, is when you're questioning why a dive watch has to be made the way it's made, I find that when I do come across somebody wearing a dive watch, they're wearing it generally an older watch. Mm-hmm. And it's because they buy dive gear all the time because dive gear just gets destroyed by the act of diving. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're, you're you know, saltwater diving or if you had saltwater in sunlight. Everything gets destroyed. Everything that's expensive has to be serviced frequently. And your only real respite from that believe it or not, is actually the dive watch, which is in no way the most expensive thing on your body during a dive. Right. Typically your reg set or your computer will cost way more than your average, you know, let's say a Seiko or an Aqualand or something like that. Uh, and I think it's a testament to where we've gotten from dive watches. One, that a lot of the technology, as far as the the base design and the needs, basically hit their stride in the 60s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. And yet they still outlast things that are constantly being redeveloped and redesigned and 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 you know in the hopes of it lasting through more dives or harder dives or colder dives things like that yeah and i want to kind of move into talking a little bit about our sort of favorite traits and and conversely our pet peeves with dive watches and you know it's it was an interesting point you just mentioned that um you know dive watches sort of reached their their peak of of design in this in the 60s and the 70s and and it's true people ask me you know what you know what's your favorite dive watch or what um 
I guess, what's the best dive watch? And I tell people, you know, it's, I mean, I don't want to, I don't say it's, it's not rocket science, but it, these things, they're very simple watches. And they did kind of reach the pinnacle of, of their ultimate design in, probably in 1970. I mean, you were getting watches back then that were a thousand meters water resistant, which is utter overkill. So you know that they had plenty of water resistance. You know, just a good rotating bezel, good contrasty dial with, um, you know, like white hands on a black dial is ideal. And, and for me, I mean, it sounds silly, but I just like a, a really good long rubber strap on a dive watch. Yeah, no doubt. So things that, that have happened since that time where you moved into, you know, locking bezels and even, you know, ratcheting unidirectional bezels, which I've never really, you know, had a problem with a bezel getting knocked, but okay, it's, it's fine. It's, it's a, it's a nice feature, but, you know, locking bezels, you know, bright colored dials, um, fancy clasps. I mean, all those things. I, frankly, I, I I can be just as happy diving with uh, with this new Seiko SRP Triple Seven uh, Turtle uh, that I just got recently. Yeah, I think I'll put a lot of dives on that watch. It, it does basically, you know, imagine you didn't know brands or movements or price points. There isn't that much that separates what we all consider to be a really good dive watch because that those those designs all locked their their way in a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So with the with the turtle, of course, we're looking at a six three oh nine, which is of course based on a six one oh five, which is you know, and they just it just goes back in time. And whereas maybe Seiko had generations where the case shape and things like that changed, Rolex just kind of picked something and went with it. Right. What they had was something that worked. And and I think that's that's what we still see today is these watches that everybody talks about whenever you see a top ten dive watch list are there for a fairly specific reason. Mm-hmm. they've stood the test of time they're all like you know the 911 of of watches they're just still around because they worked yeah and uh and they worked well enough to garner a lasting kind of repetitive audience right and i think that's why you can get a really good dive watch for 200 dollars. is it going to be as good as a submariner all the time no yeah will it be a great watch most definitely right there's great dive watches at every price point and uh and certainly some of my favorite um, features, I'm, I'm all about the bezel and the loom. I think that's what sets a good dive watch against uh, a bad watch. Yeah. So if the loom isn't good, it's not going to work as a dive watch. You need the ability to take your flashlight, quickly flash it over your wrist, and then have a really clear view of that minute hand mm-hmm. and of your zero pip. And if you can't get that, and preferably if it's not still charged, say, 10 minutes later, then it's just a hassle because other watches do do it correctly. Right. And with the bezel, uh, it's all about, yeah, just being able to very easily grip something in, you know, mixed conditions, wet, dry, hands, gloves, whichever. Mm-hmm. And like the Pelagos for me is about as good as I've ever experienced for that. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think I, I still give the edge to a Doxa just because of the way it sits high from the case. But yeah, there's there are some good ones out there. I think I think the Seikos are pretty good. I think the Pelagos is good. No doubt. Um, one thing for talking about pet peeves is... Um, is internal bezels. I, I the, the the twin crown uh, internal bezels are are just one of those things that, and and as I mentioned earlier, I've sort of softened my stance and I'm I'm sort of dividing things up into sort of dress divers and and divers I would actually take underwater. Uh, a twin crown internal bezel diver. I love the aesthetic. I've had a few of them. They look great. They're they're fun to use, but they're absolutely miserable to use uh, in a legitimate diving situation. I, I I've had numerous bad experiences doing that and no offense to any of the brands that that make them because i think they look cool and there's a history to them but it's sort of a solution to a problem that doesn't exist in terms of uh you know bezels getting knocked or or brushed and that they actually introduce an extra hole on the case um so that's probably 
Aside from a helium release valve on a watch, I would say an internal bezel is probably a, a kind of a, a non-starter, sort of a, the big pet peeve for me. You and I, are, I think, are both it's on record saying that helium release, release or like helium escape valves are dumb. You know, obviously a couple watches have them for, you know, legacy reasons like the Sea Dweller mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, Doxa. And if you're listening and you don't know what a helium escape valve does, hit the show notes. I'll leave the Wikipedia entry and... I think it makes it really clear that this is something that that would appeal to maybe 1% of all the people who even go underwater. Right. And if the watch is in the water, this is where I'll tease you with it. If the watch is getting wet, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It has nothing to do with water resistance or going deeper or anything like that. So check out the Wikipedia page if you're a little fuzzy on a helium escape valve. And we'll leave it at that. For me, the other one that bums me out is when the, you know, some of the, the cheaper... Uh, Asian source bracelets have uh, kind of a lackluster dive extension. (laughs) So it's that little folding mechanism. And on the Pelagos or, you know, some some of the other watches at that price point, which is a very high price point, of course, but they're just beautifully made. They don't open by accident. They don't get in the way. You barely notice they're there. I mean, if if the salesman didn't tell you or if you weren't a watch nerd, you may not know that your Pelagos has a really nice fold-out extension. But on some of these cheaper watches, you just want to take the watch off at the end of the day. Yeah. And there's no way to remove the bracelet without popping open this little five five millimeter extension. And, you know, I always just think, like, I need a way to remove this from the bracelet. But they always use some proprietary fitting into the buckle and it's a pain. And yeah. Just just skip them and give me a, a really long rubber strap and, and, you're, and you're set. Is that how you prefer to wear a, a dive watch? I mean, when you, when you go diving, you sort of have three options, I think. You've got... The, the metal bracelet, if it comes with one, you've got a rubber strap, and of course you have a NATO strap. Um, how do you typically dive with a watch? I mean, about 90% of my diving's cold water, so I have a dry suit. Mm-hmm. And so you need a, a really long strap. So in some situations, like I have an isoframe, so if I'm reviewing a 22 millimeter watch, I have an isof- isoframe with an extension. Mm-hmm. So I can put that on anything, and it's a beautiful fit. That's a pretty much a perfect way to dive with a big watch. Yeah. A long enough NATO would be a great option. In the past, I've used two NATOs, mm-hmm. and that works okay, but it's not great. Uh, my preference is just a, a rubber strap, either long enough or uh, with an extension. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I I, I rarely dive with a NATO strap simply because I mean, I, the the advantage, of course, of a NATO strap is it's a single piece of fabric, and if you pop a a spring bar, you're, you don't lose the watch. But aside from the fact that when you're done diving, it you end up end up with this soggy in a piece of material around your wrist um, that tends to slide around. I find them a little bit thin and finicky, with, with your, especially if you're wearing gloves, which, uh, James, as you know, when you're diving in cold water, you've got these big, meaty, thick neoprene yeah. wet or dry gloves on your hands, and it's very hard to operate straps um, or bracelets or anything. And so if you're trying to, f- you know, you've put on both of your gloves and then you're strapping on your, your watch over, uh, over one glove or over a sleeve it can be really difficult to thread that strap through the buckle. Oh, it'd be impossible, yeah. Yeah, so I usually either have somebody else help me with it, or if I'm trying to be totally self-sufficient, you know, it's I just opt for a good rubber strap, and, and there again, I come back to Seiko. I just think that, that they make um, exactly the kind of the type of long rubber strap that I typically like to, like to wear. Yeah, I fully agree. The strap that comes with the 777, which comes on the rubber, is great, and that'll definitely be the option that I take uh, when I take it diving probably next weekend. Oh, nice. Cool.
All right, so now it's time for new business. So this is where we take a look at uh, you know new watches we've got in, projects we're working on, new gear we're enjoying. Whatever's new, uh, this is where we cover it. So I think kind of the big new watch news for the last little while is uh, you know three new models announced by Bremont for Basel. So we now have an MB2 with a white dial that looks really killer. Black hands, black markers. I love a white dial, and the MB2 looks really good in that method. We have a new version of the ZT, which I spoke about in episode two, uh, now called the ZT-51, which kind of takes some of the styling from the P-51, which is a limited edition kind of aviation model from uh, Bremont quite a few years ago, I want to say 2011. And then we have a black dial Alt-1C slash PB. So if you remember the white dial with the polished case, kind of the dressiest of the Alt-1C, same idea, but now with a black dial. I think all three look excellent i really like the borrowing the 51 styling for the zt it makes it like an entirely different looking watch what do you think jason yeah of of the three the mb2 is the one that that i just keep gushing over um, when i see pictures on instagram um particularly from from our friend mike pearson who's the the north american rep for uh her brand manager for for bremont he keeps flashing photos of that around and it is uh it's a beautiful watch. I've always liked the MB series anyway, but for some reason with the white dial, uh, the, the contrast with the hands and just that, that form factor with the, here going back to twin crowns, um, it's just it's just a cool watch. Yeah, I think that for me, the handset, it's because the hour hand on the black dial, you know, you just have, it has a little triangle of loom toward a, at the point of the hour hand. Mm-hmm. And you lose the rest of the hand as it matches the black dial. But with the white dial version, that's all contrast. You get the impression of your normal kind of big aviator hour hand. And uh, I, I think it just works really well to have that that balance of black and white with that case design. And I think it's obviously it's proved itself to be a versatile style. Uh, they're net, you know, they have three editions of it and now multiple colors. And I think it's cool. And it'll be exciting to be, see all three at uh, Basel World next month. Yeah, looking forward to it. And I also got in, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, but you can go back to episode two where we talk more about the Seiko Turtle. I got one in for review with the blog to watch. Going to take it diving, do the whole video thing. It's going to be fun. And then I also have, um, I got a package of my, like my order for Toxic Nados came in, and they're awesome. I've been wearing them all week. Super happy with them. The fabric, I would say, is more like a seatbelt. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, t- it's a very tight but very uh, flexible type of nylon. The holes are really nice, and the hardware is as good as anything I've seen on any NATO, the Omega ones included. Yeah, it's great. And I think, uh, in particular, the, the combination of a Seiko Turtle on the Toxic NATO, which is what I have on my wrist right now, it works so good. Yeah. And then finally, following in the NATO theme, I got in for review the Longines Heritage Military COSD. So it's like a World War II paratroopers watch. I've only had it for a couple of days, uh, so it's a little early to offer too much of an opinion. But it wears beautifully. I really like the dial design, great contrast, and I'm really looking forward to kind of digging into the history of the watch and its design with uh, World War II paratroopers for the review eventually. The only sort of new acquisition I've, I've gotten in the past uh, couple of weeks is uh, I attended one of our local Red Bar events, uh, which is a, a meeting of local watch enthusiasts that uh, sort of spawned, spawned from the original Red Bar group that was meeting in New York. And I was at an event last week here at a bar, and one of the guys was was selling a vintage uh, uh, Bulova Accutron astronaut, which 
I, I, I was just immediately smitten with and had to have because I'm, I've, I'm on this sort of kick lately with uh, sort of the space program. I've always been a bit of a space geek and I, I also recently acquired an old caliber 321 Speedmaster. So this seems like the perfect sort of complement to that watch. And it was didn't cost much and it's got a great history. It was recently serviced. And uh, I've been putting up a few photos of that on Instagram and I'll certainly throw one up on, on the Grey NATO's uh, Instagram feed as well. So that's that's been a fun watch to uh, to play with. And then, you know, in terms of modern watches, I'm still working on, I've still got the uh, the Zodiac Super Seawolf 68 in for review, which, uh, you know, since we're talking about dive watches earlier today, it it's it's really a great dive watch. It, it, it's very similar to the Squala, the, uh, the 101 Atmos uh, case. It's that same style case without lugs. Um, it sort of has a top locking bezel ring that holds the bezel on. But in this case, with the Super Seawolf, the bezel itself is actually spring-loaded, so you actually have to push down on it to turn, and it turns... Well, this one only turns uh, counterclockwise, but it, the action is just superb. It really feels good to, to push and turn, and they did they did a really nice job with that watch, so I'm uh, working up a review, and that should publish sometime in early March on uh, Gear Patrol. And then recently, I also wrote an article for Hodinkee on a marine chronometer that was built by a British firm called Thomas Mercer, and that firm actually built marine chronometers since the 1800s, and they built one that accompanied Ernest Shackleton on his famous ill-fated expedition to Antarctica. And so this is the 100th anniversary of Shackleton's expedition. And there was a group of Royal Navy guys from the UK that, that were retracing his expedition, and Thomas Mercer built a one-off marine chronometer that, that they, uh, they actually sailed with on the open back deck of their sailboat across the uh, the southern ocean so i just thought that was a really cool cool story yeah very cool you know we're like you said earlier we're looking ahead to, to basel world uh, our next episode will be sort of our last episode before basel and we'll be previewing basel as best we can kind of thinking about or talking about things that we're hoping to see and, and maybe making a few predictions but you know things are ramping up i've got i've got a full calendar already set up for for that week uh, so many meetings no doubt Okay, so we have a new segment this week. The GreyNATO at gmail.com has been blowing up with your questions. So Nate C. wrote us a, with a long message that we're going to boil down to just a couple of questions. One, how did we approach our move into more and more expensive watches? So Nate's considering a few different watches that would push his buying threshold above $1,000 and then with something like a date just into the several thousand dollar range. And, you know, just trying to navigate his move from his comfort zone into kind of the next phase of ownership as far as cost. So... Uh, Jason, where, what, what kind of advice would you have for a Nate as he makes that move between it looks like a sin or a date just? Well, thanks, Nate, for the question. You know, like you, uh, you know, back in when I first started uh, getting into watches, I sort of had this flurry of buying and selling and trading and, and I wasn't quite sure what the next watch would be. And um, I sort of moved from, from Seiko to Omega, got into a few other brands, Bell & Ross and Longines, um, up to up to Rolex. But Lately, I've found myself almost moving more down market and appreciating more affordable vintage watches, smaller brands, or not smaller brands, but more affordable brands like Oris and Seiko. Um, I, I really like your idea of, of the Sin. I think Sin is one of those brands that uh, I like to use the word unimpeachable. I sort of feel like they're a brand that, that you know, watch geeks really like and um, you know, people that don't know anything about watches, they still take an interest, they still like them. And you can use them for stuff, which is something that James and I both espouse, which is just taking watches and just having fun with them, doing cool stuff, having adventures. So, 
you know, I, I don't want to, to lean too heavy on the SIN. I think the Rolex Datejust is an equally versatile watch, but it does come with the baggage that you get with a Rolex. On the other hand, you know, it will accrue in value potentially. I don't want to certainly use watches as an investment strategy or advise that, but they do tend to hold their value, if not increase in value, and that's something to consider. But I would say, you know, given you, you mentioned you're in your early 20s and you're kind of moving into that next realm of watches, I feel like the SIN is the best choice. What do you think, James? Yeah, Nate, from, from what you wrote, and I'm filling a few blanks here, but it seems like you're more interested in the Zen um, and that the Datejust, which is an amazing watch, might not get as much wrist time. Since I've been into watches, you know, we'll say pushing about 10 years, Zen has largely become a go-to brand for the enthusiast class sport watch. Uh, that doesn't hit that Omega or Rolex price point. I think the 104 that you're looking at is a gorgeous watch with a huge amount of mass appeal. It's definitely not going to let you down if, if, if you look at it and that's like it fits your style and that kind of thing. So I, I would say it sounds like you're more interested in the Zen. I would go with the Zen. There's never going to be a shortage of Datejust and I actually don't think the Zen's going to move much in its value providing you treat it okay. So I would just uh, follow your nose with that one and, and, and pick the one you want the most. And if it's the Zen because it'll get more wrist time, I think that's a perfect way to make a decision from one watch to another. The one that you'll wear more is probably a better choice. But I, I would say go with the Zen. And, and again, thanks so much for writing. Happy hunting. Please send us an email or uh, tag us on Instagram with whatever you choose. We're really excited for you. And moving on to question two, Jonas from London writes in to ask, uh, what's your ultimate holiday watch? Vintage or modern, a watch to take to the beach, skiing, or to a mildly dressy party in the evening? Uh, he's also looking for low, medium, and money is no object selections. Jason, you do a lot of traveling. What's your go-to uh, vacation travel watch? Well, yeah, I think about this a lot. And I, you know, if I'm not taking a watch along that I've gotten in for review. Uh, you know, lately, again, I don't want to keep uh, you know, ringing the Seiko bell here, but but Seiko kind of, again, tops my list uh, in terms of vacation watches. And I think Seiko kind of hits in the low and medium categories for me. I spent three weeks in Sri Lanka over the, the Christmas and New Year's holidays and uh, did a little of everything. We, we went uh, scuba diving, we did some hiking in the mountains. Uh, in addition to a few sort of social evenings and, and events like uh, New Year's Eve on the beach, it was sort of a nice party. And uh, I just brought one watch for the entire trip, which I was a little apprehensive about as, as a, a self, uh, self-admitted self watch nerd. Um, but I brought my Seiko Marine Master 300 meter, which I wore on a rubber strap. And I just found that I didn't tire of it. It was a really good watch for everything we did. Uh, it had a, you know, it has a, an, enough polish to it, the applied markers, uh, sort of a glossy bezel um, that it it looks nice. It doesn't look like you're just wearing you know something, you know some cheap plastic watch or something. It's it's a nice piece, um, but of course it, it's eminently capable, so you can pretty much do anything in it. So I'd kind of put that you know maybe an SKX Seiko in terms of the low uh, category for a travel watch, and they make great travel watches. Uh, the Marine Master or something maybe um, like James's uh, Seamaster in that sort of middle category. And then on the high end, uh, you know, Rolexes make quite good travel watches. They're, they have that same level, if not better, durability, I don't, if that's possible, than a Seiko. Um, they're, they're just built tough. They're built for, for anything you can throw at them, even, even something like a Datejust or an Oyster Perpetual. Um, but uh, for a travel watch, they do come with baggage, uh, as we mentioned earlier, and you can make yourself, to a certain degree, a target for theft whether it's in your hotel room or right off your wrist on, on a street somewhere. So 
Um, I do tend to leave my Rolex at home if I'm traveling anywhere that, that might seem a little sketchy. Um, I just wanted to throw out a, a sort of a little travel tip. It's something that I do um, whenever I'm, I'm on the road uh, wearing a watch. I usually take um, a second watch. I've got an old beat up Seiko 7002 diver uh, that I got at a thrift shop for 35 bucks and it's pretty beat up, but I keep it on a NATO strap and I put it in my, my shaving kit or my DOP kit. And it's, it, I hardly ever wear it, but if for some reason my primary watch breaks or heaven forbid I lose it, I don't want to be without a watch for the rest of the trip. So I tend to, to kind of just keep that as my backup. And then I also keep a backup NATO strap in my, in my case as well with a small little, you can get these little portable spring bar tools um, that don't freak out the, the TSA, the security guys at the airport. Um, so just in case I need to, to make an on-the-fly change, um, I'm ready for that. So what do you think, James? What, what are your uh, picks for travel watches? Oh, yeah, I think that's a great tip to kind of be prepared for a strap failure or to have a backup watch. Both of those are awesome. Uh, you know, Jonas, I would say I commend you for possibly considering traveling with just one watch. This is something that people consider is like, what, what would I wear? I maybe don't want to take my best piece into a situation where I'm going to get it crowded full of sand or possibly beaten up on a hike or, or whatever you do, you know, touring around possibly a rough or sketchy city. These are all parts of exploring, and I think you have to plan that accordingly. To be really quick, I'm going to mirror what Jason said for the entry level. Don't overthink it. An SKX like a 007 or an 09 or something like the new SRP will keep you well under $500, and it's never going to let you down. Bring a spare NATO strap and you're set. If you want to spend a little bit more money, I think Zinn offers some really cool tough GMTs, which would of course give you the ability to either track time at home or maybe at your next destination if you're doing like a multi-hop. So the U2, the 856 uh, UTC. And then if you move up from there, now you're pushing up into Bremont. You have that really cool Oracle 2, which is a titanium GMT dive watch. There's nothing that you're going to do to that that's going to make it stop. It's going to work anywhere. It'll certainly work at your party in the evening. It might be a little big, but I don't think anyone will notice. And then, of course, you're up in, again, with Rolexes. I have an Explorer 2, which would be a perfect watch for a vacation or for traveling. Certainly, that's largely what they were designed for. And then lastly, I would suggest if you really want to buy something uh, in that price point, take a look at some of the stuff from uh, Seiko. Beautifully made, like the Grand Seikos. Beautifully made. Uh, they make a high-beat GMT, which is the SBGJ003. And they make a really cool spring drive GMT, which is the SBGE001. Sorry to go two reference number on some of you there, but <laughs> it's hard to uh, keep them all together. And then if, if you're really going money, no object, then you're well into my personal preference would be something like a Patek Philippe 5990, the GMT chronograph from, I think, two years ago at Basel. Mega cool watch, maybe, maybe also hire an armed guard if you're going to go somewhere sketchy, uh, but a very cool watch and certainly one that, that, I mean, they're just beautifully made. They would definitely keep up with a vacation. So Jonas, thanks very much for your question. If any of you have a question that you'd like addressed on the show, I'm replying to as many emails as possible, as quickly as possible. Please send us an email, thegraynado at gmail.com or tag thegraynado on Twitter or Instagram. And obviously the at Graynado Instagram account posts every time there's a new episode, so you could always drop a question in there, and we'll do our very best to get to all of them. Drop us a line, and we'll see where it lands. Okay, now it's time for our final notes section, where we give you a few recommendations, typically something free or almost free, whether it's a video link, books we're reading, movies to watch, uh, that sort of thing. James, what have you got? 
All right, so hopefully everyone had a chance to at least read the synopsis for Shadow Divers and the right stuff. Um, I'm about 20, 25% into the right stuff and loving every page. It's so, so good. And then I've actually received a bunch of notes from people on Instagram saying they really like Shadow Divers, so I'm probably going to go back and read that again because it's been about a year or two. I'll follow last week's path and just recommend another book to start. So this is No Shortcuts to the Top by Ed Vesters. If you don't know Ed Vesters, he's the only American to have climbed all 14 8,000-meter peaks, and he's the fifth person in history to do every peak at least once without supplemental oxygen. So certainly of living alpinists, but certainly within the realm of alpinists from all time, uh, Ed Vesters has a spot in the upper echelons. The guy's hardcore, very philosophical about his climbing, very rule-based about when you call it quits, quite famously got to the top of one of his, or nearly the top within 100 or 200 yards of the peak of one of his hardest climbs ever and turned back knowing that those last 200 meters probably would have killed anyone, let alone him. Uh, I highly recommend the book. It's written semi-autobiographical, but it's a chronicling of his stories and the the amazing you know things that he was part of and the amazing people that he got a chance to climb with during his career. Very humble guy and uh, a fascinating book, so be sure to check that out. And finally, I'll go in another direction. I have a deep, deep love for cars, and one of my favorite YouTube channels is Petrolicious. If you don't watch their stuff, go on to your YouTube and subscribe immediately, and then go up into the search bar and dig up. You'll hear the growler from a mile away. It's an awesome video about a guy who owns a hot rod canyon style 964 Porsche 911. The guy drives the car so hard in the video. It's so loud. It's such a cool video. Beautifully shot. And Petrolysis just kind of chronicles owners and their cars with these videos. There's a new one every week. They're awesome. Jason, I know you're a fan. Check out their channel. Check out Ed Vesters. All good stuff. I love Tuesdays because uh, that's when Petrolicious releases their new videos. And, of course, the Graynado comes out every every two Tuesdays. So Yo. Tuesday's a good day of the week. Um, on my end, um, I've got a couple of book recommendations. One is a book I'm about halfway through that I'm enjoying. It's by a guy named Bill Strever, S-T-R-E-V-E-R. And he's he's written a book called Cold, which is about, it's about exactly what the title says. It's about um, what the cold does to the body and to living creatures, plants and animals, um, everything from humans to little caterpillars that live in the Arctic tundra. Um, and he kind of takes each chapter and goes to a different cold place at a different time of the year. And um, I guess being someone from one of the colder parts of the U.S. here in Minneapolis, it's uh, something I can relate to. He's also written a book called Heat, which is about hot places. I have yet to read that book, but I'm, I'm sure it's equally good. Uh, and then, you know, we don't often talk about fiction books here, but uh, one of my favorite authors is a guy named James Salter, S-A-L-T-E-R. And Salter, I think he just died last year, um, but he was a, a pretty celebrated author. He, um, he wrote one of my favorite books, which was called Solo Faces. And it's kind of a nice, short, little introspective novel about sort of the rock climbing culture in the 1960s in Yosemite Valley and then also in... Uh, in the Alps over near Chamonix and I don't know it's just it, it's such a great book it's it really puts you in that in that place and so I recommend uh, Solo Faces by James Salter sounds great and then finally a lot of watch nerds already know about this forum but the military watch resource is it's it's a great old school web forum for watch enthusiasts and particularly guys that are into 
military watches, whether they're military-inspired watches uh, or historical watches or, or actual issued pieces that were issued to navies and armies and air forces and marines around the world. And these guys, they, they dig so deep. They've got such a deep knowledge for for the watches. It's it, it's very humbling to read their stuff, and I learn a ton every time I go there. And then if you're into buying any of those watches, they do have what they call the PX, which is a, the sales forum part of the, part of the site. Um, and you have to be a member to access that. That's at mwrforum.net, and we'll put that link up in the show notes. Okay, and there's our final notes. I hope that's enough to chew on until the next episode. Episode 4 will be out in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much for listening. Hit the show notes for more details. You can follow us on Instagram. Jason is at Jason Heaton. I am at J.E. Stacy, And follow the show at The Grey NATO. If you have any questions for us, please write thegraynado at gmail.com or hashtag thegraynado on Instagram or Twitter. Also, please subscribe and review wherever you find your podcasts or grab the feed from soundcloud.com slash thegraynado. Music throughout, Siesta by Jazzer via the Free Music Archive. Until next time, we leave you with a thought from the naturalist Adolf Miri, who said, Let the tourist be on his own and not be spoon-fed at intervals. Let him be encouraged to keep his eyes open, do his own looking and exploring, and catch what he can of the magic of wilderness. <laughs>